Welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini, represented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Rob Doster is back on the podcast. Funny story, about a week and a half ago, 10 days ago, Rob and I decided we wanted to podcast on the Game Theory here, and we recorded like an hour long. The problem was that since I've downloaded Catalina, I realized that I basically have to put my phone on airplane mode while I podcast. Otherwise, the calls come through my phone, and my call recorder decides to die. So, Rob, I'm glad that we're doing this again. I'm glad you decided to run it back with me. Uh, And mostly, I just apologize that you guys didn't get this sooner. Well, it's also like I, I don't know if that podcast was necessarily our best work. You know, I feel like some of our jokes probably fell flat, and you know, it was good to just kind of get like a run through, like just a dry run through to make sure that all of our jokes and everything is ready to go. So I feel like now today uh, we're we're probably in a better position to make it happen. So you know what? I think that your uh, technical difficulties just did the listeners a favor. Or was it the greatest podcast we've ever done? And it's now like an episode of it's like the lost episodes of like some movie or something like there are all these lost films like from the early 1900s now that have burned in fires because of course uh back in the early 1900s they put them all on films which was incredibly flammable this is our version of the lost films that were great in the 1900s <laughs> yeah pretty much you know what the best part about it is the listeners are never ever gonna know you're no, never gonna know how there, good that podcast was. There, there is genuinely no like recording of it anywhere. It's it's gone off of my computer for sure. Um, so we're gonna open with two things here today. So Kobe Bryant passed over the weekend, and I have not podcasted since then. So look, I don't have any sort of you know unbelievable Kobe Bryant story to uh, bring forth to the listeners. So part of it was I wanted to give some distance. From it because I don't think I have anything incredible to add to the conversation. Like it's, um, there are so many better podcasts that you could listen to with people that have interacted. Uh, there are a lot of them on the athletic right now. People who have genuine one-on-one interactions with Kobe. Have you ever met Kobe? I met him just like once at Mamba Academy and like, he seemed nice. I, I never met Kobe. Um, the only Kobe story that I have it came secondhand, but it was uh, I told this on my podcast. It was he used to fly into like the Team USA training camps that they would hold in Las Vegas, yeah. um, uh, like the the day before, and he would get someone that worked at UNLV to let him into the gym uh, the night before, and they would just like kind of leave him there and let him lock up when he left. And they said that uh, they would leave, and then they would come back in the morning, and Kobe was already back like drenched in sweat, getting a second workout in before the actual Team USA practices. And I, I just thought, I always thought that was a little bit uh, telling on how, how he kind of har- carried himself as a professional and, and the way that he kind of viewed uh, what you have to do to, to be at the level that he was at. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think that that's why a lot of this was as devastating as it was. Like, I actually, like, spent Sunday, like, pretty – like bummed and very, I I don't want to go as far as like distraught. Like I wasn't crying necessarily or anything like that, but um, it it is, it's a tough loss, I think. And in large part, it's a tough loss because he was so inspirational to so many kids. I mean, you talk to college kids uh, as much as I do, if not more. And I specifically focus on prospects and what you hear when you talk to them, like, uh, you know, a common question that comes up is like, who do you, uh, who inspires you? Who do you model your game after? And I swear to God, half of those kids say Kobe. Like it's, it's, he is absolutely the most common answer to those questions. And I think it's because of that insatiable work ethic that is 
just an unbelievable credit to him, and it is something that I think is genuinely reachable. It's it, what Kobe did. Look, he was blessed incredibly. Uh, in terms of his genes, right? Like he was the son of an NBA player and he's six foot six and was athletic enough to win a dunk contest. Right. But so much of what he did within the basketball world was just genuinely due to his drive and due to his desire to be the best and that insatiable work ethic. And I think that that is something that is aspirational in a way that, you know, some other you know, skills like LeBron's skill set, LeBron's, you know, athleticism and his uncommon feel for the game. That's not aspirational. That's just, you know, not to say that LeBron's not a hard worker, but it, it it's so uncommon that I think it's impossible to look at LeBron and go, I can be that guy. With Kobe, I think it's a lot more commonplace to look at Kobe and be like, I can be like that guy. Yeah. And, and you know, his physical tools were certainly of a uh, cal. Like I could never be Kobe Bryant, let's just put it like that. But I do think that um, the way that he kind of carried himself as a professional was something that a lot of people uh, connected with and and respected. And, you know, it certainly helped that he found himself in the right situation. Like I I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and I was like, if he let's say that trade never goes through and he ends up like playing for the Hornets. Right. Does he kind of reach this level that he's at right now? And, And, you know, I do think that he probably does because he just seems like one of those guys that was go, like, no matter what life threw at him, he was going to do whatever he wanted to do because he just once he put his mind to something, he was going to make it happen. And uh, you know, I think you do see some of that in um, guys like I think Kawhi might be the best example of that now. Just somebody who has uh, turned themselves into a great player when they weren't necessarily considered to be a great player when they entered the NBA. So I think that. That is what people connect with. And it's also the fact that he was kind of that bridge between the Jordan era and the LeBron era, right? That's where everybody kind of fell in love with Kobe when he was like, as soon as um, Jordan retired, right? And then you have the Lakers kind of take over and win their three straight titles. And that's when Kobe kind of came to the forefront. And after that, that little run ended was when LeBron kind of entered the NBA and kind of entered his prime and turned into the LeBron that he is now. So he had like that six, seven, eight-year window where he was the guy. And that happened to coincide with the the moment when like the internet was taking off and the accessibility yeah. of uh, of games nationally and internationally uh, went to another level. And you were able to watch stuff like streaming it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have all these social media things popping up and YouTube and, and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. So I, I do think that he, uh, part of the reason why he kind of became the, the, the icon that he is is because he came along at the right time. But it's not just that, you know, it's, it's, it's the fact that he, it's the way that he kind of carried, like the Mamba mentality. Like, I used to think that that was really, really corny when people would say Mamba mentality, but I do think that uh, in listening to people that actually knew him talk about it, it was it, it kind of, to me, seems like the, the kind of thing where you're saying, okay, I'm going to go out there and whatever I want to accomplish, I'm actually going to make it happen, and I'm not going to stop working towards it until I actually do that. I don't think it had it as much to do with, like, specifically well, you're, basketball you're, as it did just, like, the, your, the way that you kind of carried yourself and your drive and, and what you wanted to make happen with your life. Well, here's here's the thing that I think gets complicated about the Mamba mentality thing. I mean, you, you look at interviews. He's done interviews with Ramona Shelburne and with, I think there's a Woj one, and he's discussed the Mamba mentality as something that, like, he adopted in order 
to change his mindset surrounding the Colorado court case, right? So does the Mamba of it all exist if the Colorado court case doesn't exist? I don't know that it does, to be honest. And that's where I can't really get behind, like, labeling uh, himself Mamba. But, you know, and I think the Colorado court case is an incredibly important part of his legacy as well. And I I don't think it's too early to discuss it. I think that uh, he was a man that was filled with faults. And to brush over those faults is unfair to his legacy just as it would be to only discuss the good parts of his legacy I, I don't think he'd want it that way to be honest and with Kobe I mean where, where do you put like I, I just I don't want to brush over the Colorado thing I guess like whenever I was a kid I grew up and I, I love Kobe like he was someone that he, he really impacted the way that I love basketball and then the Colorado case happens and he adopts the Mamba thing and he genuinely starts to enjoy becoming a villain. I fell out of love with Kobe in many ways and it's just been since I've gotten back into working within the basketball industry that uh, I've begun to respect Kobe more and have begun to really, really appreciate his uh, desire, his work ethic, and the way that he operates within the industry. And uh, you start to hear stories about how he would just do these things for people and he didn't want anyone to know about it. Like he would just be incredibly kind to strangers uh, for no reason. And it, it brings a new appreciation of who he was as a person. But at the same time, you can't, I can't let go of that Uh Colorado case because I think that there are a lot of survivors right now of sexual assault that are they're going through some things it's a Kobe's legacy is incredibly difficult and I think it's worth noting that Kobe essentially admitted that you know this woman did not think it was consensual and that by nature is a very real problem like it's not that he was not convicted you know we have Kobe saying that this you know she clearly did not think this was consensual yeah, and, and the the big thing for me, at, at least when this first happened, was um, the the tragedy of of what happened here wasn't just Kobe passing away. It was the fact that one hundred percent right. Yeah, it was the fact that you know his his daughter, a thirteen year old girl, passed away. It was the fact that that that's were, what affected me most on Sunday was just the fact that he was taking his daughters and his daughter's friends. By the way, like imagine those girls on that helicopter being like holy shit, like I'm in a helicopter with Kobe Bryant and Gigi Bryant and we're going to our travel game. Like that had to be the experience of a lifetime for those girls. And for it to end so tragically is just so terrible. Yeah, and, and the the thing that I kept doing was putting myself in that situation and, and putting myself on that helicopter and knowing that like Kobe Bryant is a father and the only thing that he wants to do is to be able to, you know, give his daughter a, a great life and keep her happy and keep her safe. And, and same with all those other parents, the Altabelli, uh, the Altabellis, and I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on the name of the other family that was on there, but that the was Mausers, the thing for me. I believe. Yeah, the Mausers. So um, that was the thing for me. It's like putting myself in a situation where, like, cause I have kids and, and, and thinking about what would happen if I was in a place where I knew what was going to be inevitable and how something was going to end up. And, and the fact that it was not going to end up well and how you process that, with your child sitting right there next to you. And that's, that, that's the thing that got me. And that's why I didn't, I don't want to say it was wrong to the, to discuss like everything that was going on uh, with the, the court case in that moment and the accusation and the sexual assault and all that in that moment, because the tragedy to me 
was this 13 year old girl not being there and the chance and not being able to see that. So like we have an eternity to be, to discuss Kobe Bryant's legacy and what it meant and how uh, that, that incident in Colorado affects it and how we can view him in the long term. But in the immediacy, immediacy of that, uh, of that moment, there were eight other people on board, including three children that died. Like I, I just, I, I did not feel like it was the place in that moment to have that conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, Look, maybe the day of, like, I'm pretty cool with it not being brought up, but I think it's important to be able to discuss these things because, uh, like I said, like, it's not just the fact that there were eight other people lost. There were um, countless survivors that are probably being triggered, you know, around Los Angeles right now by seeing everything being laden in purple and yellow and Kobe's jersey and everything being uh, so prominently displayed. Like it's, it's a really tough conversation to have. And at the same time, I can't help but think that Kobe has done a lot of great in the world. And it's just such a complicated legacy that uh, I I don't know how to grapple with in many ways. Yeah. And and it's, I think the, it's just, it, it kind of represents what humanity is and what all people are, right? Like nobody, nobody is perfect. Not even people that we want to try to pretend are perfect. And, um, you know, and, and I think that, uh, there's probably part of Kobe that said like, okay, I did this thing that I now realize was probably wrong. I need to find a way to make up for that. I need to pay my appendix. And, And maybe the fact that he's doing all of these charitable things is, is especially with like women's basketball is part of the way of him saying, uh, I realized that I did something wrong and, and, you know, let's kind of fix this. Let's empower women. Let's uh, let, let's do them. Let, let me do something that brings good to the world instead of being someone that only brings harm or brings pain and brings sadness. And um, so I wonder if that kind of played a role in it as well. But uh, I, I do think we've reached the point where it, it's time to start discussing that. Like that, it, that has to be a conversation at some point in regards to Kobe. But I think there was a, a while there that we could kind of respect what his, um, what, the, the other lives that were lost before we turned this into an argument, which inevitably it's going to end up being about whether or not Kobe was a good person or what's his legacy, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it just, I didn't, I, that's not, that's what I didn't want to see. Does that make sense? Like a 13 year old girl lost her life with her father and, and there were three of them on that, that helicopter. So uh, we, we, we can talk about that at like, like now, I mean, it might even be the time now, just at some point you kind of had to say like, I don't, <laughs> there's a there's a there's a there's a wife out there that doesn't have her husband coming home and doesn't have a daughter. There's a 17 yeah. year old whose father isn't coming home. There's a newborn, a seventh month old, seven month old baby who's never going to know her father and never going to know her older sister. There's a three year old who Vanessa Bryant is going to have to explain like over and over again why Daddy and her big sister Gigi aren't going to be coming back. Like we have there's plenty of time to have for that conversation to happen. You know? Yeah, there is. It's a great point. It's a really great point. Again, the the biggest part of his legacy to me is talking to players about him and talking to players about how he inspires them. And I think that that might be the long-lasting legacy of Kobe Bryant, even beyond the fact that he was probably a top 10 player of all time, top 15 player of all time. Um, The fact that he was so inspirational to so many players out there, I think that that's the one where I look at it and I go, Oh wow! Like his legacy is going to be felt far beyond uh, even just the next five years. Yeah, and I also think it's important to note, and we'd kind of mentioned it offhand earlier, but the way that he embraced 
the women's game and the fact yeah. that he was doing that with his daughter and coaching him up the way that he did. And, and, you know, you see all these videos and pictures going around about like girl dad and all that stuff trending. And, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's it's a good thing that he's doing that for the WNBA. It's a really good thing that he did it for women's basketball to see the relationship that he has yeah. like with the Oregon team and the UConn women's team. And it does feel like that's kind of been a trend, especially with the best basketball players in the world. Like it, it, it kind of it, it's it's ironic a little bit where like guys like LeBron and Kobe and and um, NBA players and the best uh, men's college basketball players all have a great deal of respect for the women's game in the WNBA. Well, you see these idiots on Twitter are the right. ones like making the jokes about it and everything. So um, I do think that once you get the backing from somebody with the status in basketball, like Kobe or like LeBron or, or guys at that level, uh, where they say, yes, women's basketball is fun. Let's watch this. Let's celebrate it. Let's let's embrace uh, what these women are doing and how well they are, like they're, how they're playing the sport. And let's make sure they get paid. And uh, let's enjoy this exciting sport the same way that we enjoy the NBA or the NCAA tournament or whatever. I think that that has helped um, – move it forward a little bit and kind of giving it a little bit of a foothold publicly in terms of, uh, you know, what we think about of, of basketball and women's women's athletics. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about Kobe? I feel like we've exhausted it pretty. Yeah. It, yeah. I think we, we, the only other, the last thing I'll just say is make sure you go watch uh, the, the inside the NBA the other night. Oh God, uh, man, that was, that was very much worth the time. The, the two things that devastated me most over the course of the last 24 hours were uh, UConn putting a number two jersey on a chair for Gigi Bryant uh, and flowers on the chair because she always wanted to play for UConn. And then watching Shaq talk about Kobe Bryant. Man, that was whew, that was tough. That was real yeah, tough. The, the Shaq thing was tough, but it's, I think it's definitely – the, the message that he was putting out is something I think everybody should hear, especially people that work a lot. Yeah, I mean, like that. Yeah, I think that that's why it connected with me so much. Like, I work 60, 70 hours a week, it feels like. And, you know, I, uh, like I probably have not talked to my mom in a, at least a week or so. So I need to – I think we all could be better at making sure and reaching out to people. So uh, I, I want to transition to something much – much less serious and way funnier than Kobe Bryant. Did you see Coach K last night just screaming at the Cameron Crazies over them chanting at Jeff Cable? I, I like how you said, did you see it, when you have uh, texted me probably a good, like, 15 times in the last 24 hours. Well, that, that's, how, yes, that's how you do yes, the, I did. Yes, I did see it, Sam. I it's how you do it. the professional <laughs> – it's a professional introduction to a new topic, Rob. This is how. I thought I was on the Game Theory podcast. I didn't know this was a professional operation. This is how people <laughs> in the biz do it, right, Rob? This is a yeah. this is a very serious operation here. Um, I got, you, got you. The funniest fucking thing I've seen in so long. Like, I think that I don't know what is funnier to me this college basketball season. Is it the Bill Self like rap video Adidas shirt like? Him in the record store looking for a Snoop Dogg record. Kansas just bringing Snoop Dogg and putting out, like, stripper poles for strippers to come out uh, in the middle of Fog Allen Fieldhouse. Or is it Coach K screaming at the Cameron Crazies because they chanted at Coach K, at, uh, Coach Capel. And K misheard it is the funniest part about it. He misheard it and still went fucking nuts about it. I really want to know what he thought they said. Because I, I felt like 
because come sit with us. Like, I, I feel like he must have thought that there was, like, a shit involved there or something like that. I, I don't know. But come that was, shit with us? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. It just – that was a very – it was a very odd thing to see just because you don't often see um, see coaches react like that when they're – like, you want your fans to be saying stuff like that to, to opposing coaches, right? And, and I just – the best part about it was afterwards in the press conference. I don't know if you saw this same. Like, he tried to coach up the Cameron crazy. He's like, how about we get a chant like, let's go Duke. Or, you know, come on, Duke, come on, Blue Devils, trying to tell them what to chant when they're the Cameron Crazies. They can do what they want, Coach. It's It just, like, speaks to, A, the fact that this dude thinks he's, like, the god of Duke basketball. And look, like, to an extent, he has built this program up, and he should be entitled some rights that other people are not. Like, this is not one of those circumstances where he should be going over and screaming his head off and throwing a temper tantrum about mishearing what a chant is. Can you imagine if someone, like, it's it's like an entire double, double standard. Like, can you imagine if Coach Calipari did this? Can you imagine if Mick Cronin did this? Like, some of the guys, uh, Tom Izzo, like, can you imagine if he did this? It, people would not be as willing to consider it a joke, which I am. Like, I think it's fucking hilarious, but I think most of this shit's hilarious. And I think that there would be, like, a bigger outcry. Like, if Mick Cronin went and did that uh, tomorrow night at UCLA when they play at home, I think they play Colorado. If he went and did that to the UCLA fans, all of the UCLA, like, old players like Kareem and Bill Walton, they would melt down about the fact that Mick Cronin does not have enough respect for this program. Like, it, it'd be a legitimate thing. But, but with Kay, it's just like, oh, oh, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. It's a big joke. And look, I play into that because I'm laughing at it. Like, I think it's fucking hilarious. But it's just funny that we hold this dude to such a different standard than everyone else because he wins a lot of games. Well, the good thing you don't have to worry about it with UCLA because for Mick Cronin to yell at the fans, it, it assumes that fans are actually showing up to uh, some, Pauly Pavilion. Someone made me that play. joke. Someone made that joke to me last night, and honestly, I was just like, you know what? That's a good joke, and I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, the, the premise of this uh, statement is faulty, and I was like, yeah, you know what? I get that. I'm here for that. Um, it, it just is, though. It is a double standard. Like, can you? If Cal did this, there would be. An investigation into Cal, I feel like. Yeah, it just it, – it kind of – I think it kind of sums up what uh, what Coach K has kind of branded himself as. And, you know, it makes perfect sense that he's the guy out there doing this, right? Like, it just – everything about – we're laughing about it, but everything about it just makes perfect sense in the way that, that basketball has – That's also why it's funny. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. It's just it, – it's – it, it nothing makes more sense than Coach K scolding a bunch of like rich Duke Cameron crazies uh, for not not cheering the right way. Oh man, that's oh, it's, it's it's so perfect. And the best part about it, Sam, is that anybody listening to this, you have to go out and you have to you have to find this video because there's a shot from the opposite side of the court where you see Coach K looking all angry, staring straight at all the Cameron crazies, and they look absolutely terrified. They like, do. oh, no, dad just came home and now we're getting yelled at. Is there any circumstance where you would not be laughing at that? If you were – so C.L. Brown, our friend uh, who uh, used to work at The Athletic. I don't know what C.L.'s doing now. But is there any circumstance where you would be able to sit where C.L. was sitting and not just laugh? 
Like, I, I would laugh at that if he did that. Because you could see it coming from, like, a minute away. And I think your immediate shock would wear off. And I would just, like, honestly, I would be laughing at that if he did that in front of me. <laughs> you might, if you did, if you laughed at that with him right in front of you, like, you might actually get yelled at, too, which would make it even funnier. I would, like, it's fucking hilarious. It's funny. It's genuinely funny that this guy, uh, comes over and scolds a bunch of teenagers because if there's one thing that teenagers definitely respond to and will uh, result in behavior changing, it is a scolding by a boomer. Like, that's exactly how you handle this. <laughs> and by the way, like the funniest thing is that I came up with like exactly what he should have done in five seconds last night. Like, literally, it took me five seconds. It's Coach K walks to the locker room with his team talks to his team, comes back out, grabs the microphone from the MC and says, hey, guys, please be respectful. Uh, you know, Jeff Capel's one of us, and, you know, please don't, uh, please don't do anything disrespectful to him. Period. That's it. Like, if he does that, it is not nearly as funny. It is not nearly as much of a story. It is not nearly as ridiculous looking as he was last night throwing a fucking temper tantrum at a bunch of 19-year-olds. <laughs> it's the camera crazy, man. Like, that's the thing about it. What what are you what are you expecting them to do? That's the big thing. What are you expecting out of them? The camera crazies? Yeah, no, I'm saying like if you're Coach K, what do you, what do you like? What do you oh, think yeah, is going to yeah. happen when you when you're when you're talking about the camera crazies? Like this this the whole the whole reason that they make your home court great is because of things exactly like what they just did. So I don't know. It is what it is. It's just funny. Like it. I'm not taking this as something that is serious. Uh, I'm taking it as, oh, this is like the most old man Coach K thing to do in the world because, you know, we've seen him do it with Dylan Brooks, for instance. Like I was in, I can't remember his Anaheim or Los Angeles, whenever he uh, accosted Dylan Brooks at the end of the game and called him a good player, but he needs to be more respectful and all this bullshit. Like, who the fuck cares? It's just, just chill out, Coach K. That's all I'm saying. Just maybe chill out a little bit. So the the Dylan Brooks thing I do feel like is is a little bit different because with, with if you're Dylan Brooks and you have the the coach at Team USA a guy that has coached Kobe Bryant and coached LeBron James and coached by, all by of the these, way like, Dylan Brooks Canadian oh yeah well no no but but it's still it's still Coach K right like everybody knows Coach K and you have Coach K coming over and 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 saying something to you like that that I think that's something that you respond to so to me. That's a little bit different because of the way that, that Dylan Brooks is going to take it. But I get. But I if get I'm Dana Altman, saying, like if I'm Dana that, Altman in that circumstance, and Coach K comes up and accosts my player like that, I'm not responding well to that. Like I'm saying, yeah. dude, coach your own team. Like this is not. I get that you're a legend, but please coach your own team. I got this. Yeah, well, you know, uh, let's just say that Dana Altman is not very good at responding to certain situations. So maybe, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the wrong example to give. But maybe this is just maybe this is me uh, having a disconnect with the Coach K mentality. Maybe that's why I find this all very funny. Maybe, maybe uh, it is a generational disconnect. No, no, you're, that, I mean, no, you're. It definitely. Well, one, it definitely is a generational disconnect. But I, I, I do think that you're. I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong in the way that that. That, that people view him, but I don't think that he's going to get a pass for this at all. I think he, there's going to be plenty of people that have the exact same reaction you do about uh, about Coach K um, doing more Coach K things. Oh, my. Uh, before we move on, we're going to talk some draft stuff here in a minute, but over at betonline.ag, we are 
over a or no, we're less than a week now. This copy is wrong. We're under a week until the Super Bowl, but you can still get a ton of wagering action going. Uh, how long will the national anthem go? Have you ever bet on the national anthem? Actually, I think we did last year, didn't we? Or two years yeah, ago? Yeah, I've I think I've done it for like the last four or five years or something like that. I don't even like I have no idea what I bet. I just a bunch of buddies and I uh, put together all the bets that we want to make for the the prop bets and all go in on the the same amount. And we've definitely I think we've hit like three of the last five years. So yeah. definitely profitable when it comes to wagering on the uh, the anthem. Uh, how many yards will Patrick Mahomes throw for? There are literally hundreds of props to bet on before the game even starts. Head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code CLNS50 to revive your revive. I think that's supposed to be receive. Uh, receive your 50% welcome bonus because, yeah, you're not reviving a welcome bonus. Come on, BetOnline. Tighten it up a little bit here. Head on over to betonline.ag. Use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and get in on everything about the big game. Bring the playoffs home with our exclusive sportsbook partner, BetOnline. Uh, Rob, let's talk about some draft prospects. Have any college draft prospects actually impressed you this year? Like at the high um, end, I mean. Well, it, it depends on what you mean. Like, do I think that any college draft prospects are going to be stars in the NBA? Do I think that there is a Zion Williamson or a John Morant or a Luka Doncic or even like a Trey Young in college basketball this year? Sam, I hate to break it to you, but I do not think there's anybody that's that good in college basketball this year, especially now that, like, everybody is gone. Um, now that uh, James Wiseman is gone and Cole Anthony may or may not actually be gone and R.J. Hampton never made it and LaMelo Ball never made it, so – it's uh, it's certainly been a down year for the people that watch college basketball to see the next NBA star. Well, it's just been a down year in college basketball in general. Like talent is down across college basketball. There's not really a. Uh, it's not to say that like the year isn't fun or anything. That the year is in general not filled with good storylines and not filled with enjoyable content. But it's a bad year in college basketball in terms of talent. This is not a strong. This is not a well-played season, and you can look at it from the perspective of the talent. You can look at it from the perspective of the refereeing, I think is another huge problem that college basketball faces right now. It just hasn't been like some incredible watch in college basketball this year. Yeah, and and there's plenty of reasons for that, but more than anything, I, I think it's the – um, the talent drain that we've seen in recent yeah. years, you know, and, and Sam, we've talked about this plenty, but it, there, there's two things that have kind of, uh, I think, impacted this more than anything else. And, and it, you know, part of it is um, kids leaving uh, to go play overseas. So, you know, you yeah. don't get somebody like a LaMelo Ball and you don't get somebody like a RJ Hampton. You don't get somebody like um, who's the kid from Arizona. I'm blanking on his name. Terry Armstrong. So you, there's there's players that never actually make it to a college campus. Then there is the fact that, that the guys are now going to go pro if they have a chance of getting like a two-way or a guaranteed deal or, or you know, a chance to make $100,000 playing overseas. Uh, there were 87 players that left school with eligibility remaining to declare for the draft and turn pro last season. And not like very few of them got drafted. You know, I, I think – I forget what the number was. I think about half of them ended up going undrafted. And, and when you have that many players and that many of your best players leaving, like, of course, there's going to be a, a, a drop-off in talent. And then the, the third thing that kind of brings it all together is, like, this is just a a down freshman class. There is no Zion Williamson. There is no uh, R.J. Barrett. 
uh, and even the best freshmen, like there are, they're at Georgia where they don't matter, or they are dropping out of college like James Wiseman, or they're at Washington and sitting in last place in the Pac-12. So it just, it, it's a very it feels like people are making this a referendum on college basketball, and I don't necessarily think it is. I just think it's no, like one of yeah. those weird years where, where things just kind of went a certain way and, like, this happens every once in a while. But uh, I, I do think that the problem of uh, players leaving school that aren't – you know, it started – if you're a lottery pick, then you got to go. Then it was if you're a first-round pick. Then if you could be picked in the top 40. Now it's like if you got a, any kind of chance – at an NBA contract, then you got to leave school, and I think that more than anything has been kind of what's uh, what's been really bad for the sport. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned that you don't think it's a referendum, and I don't think I think it's cyclical in many ways. Like I, I do really believe that it is just a down year, and next year we're going to have a better uh, recruiting class coming in than the one this year, and it'll return to being better. And I think that there's a chance that more kids end up staying in college basketball this season because it is kind of a down year. Having said that, you know, for the last, I think it's like three or four years, we've seen an increasing number of kids decide to go pro. And in many ways, that is a referendum on college basketball. The fact that they aren't paying players what they're worth, that does seem like a rebuke to the system in many ways. Like uh, Armani Brooks at Houston, going pro or Charlie Brown at St. Joe's or here too, Amir Coffey and Tyler Cook, like neither of those guys got drafted. Neither of those guys were on two ways immediately. Amir eventually got one in the preseason, but they didn't have any guarantee. Now, like Aubrey Dawkins, I think was 24 last year whenever he decided to go pro, but you know, guys like that deciding to leave, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of these like upperclassmen that can make, you know, $100,000 continue to go. And to me, that does seem like a referendum that will continue to drain overall talent level within college basketball. Yeah, and, and that is, that's the big issue. And that's the point that I was trying to make before is that um, when you have 87 guys, like a guy you didn't mention was Jordan Bowen at Tennessee. The problem with Tennessee yeah. all season long has been that they don't have a damn point guard. Yep. And Jordan Bowen would have been a, a, I don't know, probably like a preseason second or third team All-American had he returned. And if you put that guy on, on, on this Tennessee team right now, like they're probably a top 15 team. And I don't think that that's necessarily an exaggeration because they can really, really score. And they have some guys that can make plays on the wings. And they have some big guys that are useful. And Eves Ponds is the best defender in college basketball. And if you take all of those those things together and combine them with a guy that could be a, an all-American point guard and put the guy on the, the one player, like the one spot that you're missing on that team, they're really, really good. Uh, Amir Coffey is another great example. The, you know, the issue with this Minnesota team, they got a really good point guard in Marcus Carr, and they got a really, really good big guy in Daniel Oturo, who I'm sure we're going to end up talking about on the spot. And then you put like a great dynamic playmaking wing that can guard different positions and give you a little bit of lineup versatility in Amir Coffey, and all of a sudden, boom, you're not – a team that's on the bubble, like you're a top 25 ish kind of a team. So those are, the, that's the big difference. That's where you're seeing the hurt is not losing out on somebody like a LaMelo ball. It is the fact that there's like 10, 15, 20 teams that lost a player that was a very, very key piece for them. Yeah. Like, can you imagine if Kyle guy decided to stay at Virginia this year? Like he, he got drafted because he was willing to take a two way, but like, he is the perfect example of what Virginia drastically needs this year and the perfect example of, you know, someone that in, you know, five years ago would have stayed in college basketball. Yeah. I mean, he is, he is the guy. And honestly, like 
I don't know if he would have stayed um, like 5, 10, 15 years ago or whatever. Because if you put that in like the bigger context of they're coming off of a national title, the two guys that were his best friends in his class, Ty Jerome and DeAndre Hunter, were both obviously going pro. Uh, there's nothing else that he could accomplish at the college level. He can still go out and get his degree whenever he wants. Like I, I do kind of get it, um, and I do think that there's probably an argument to be made that he would have gone uh, no matter what. But he is like he is a perfect example in the sense that um, he was – I don't know, like one of like the five, ten best shooters in college basketball last season. And then this year, Virginia is 347th nationally in three-point shooting percentage. It's yeah. almost like they need a shooter, Sam. Almost. Almost. You know what? I, I actually uh, I, I texted somebody on that staff, and I told them that I still have a year of college eligibility left. So if they do need a shooter to bring somebody in for the second semester, I could take a graduate course at the University of Virginia. I need some business classes, maybe learn some coding, maybe learn some Photoshop, update my graphic skills, maybe take a workshop down there. I don't know. I could help. I'm just saying. It would be really funny having to see you go through the NCAA clearinghouse, uh, whether or not you're eligible because NBC has been paying you money. <laughs> the, the other thing would be seeing me try to play defense in, uh, in, in Tony Bennett's system. Oh, no, I, I would enjoy that, and I would also enjoy the aspect of you having to fight the NCAA to get eligible. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about Anthony Edwards, because I feel like he is by far the most relevant player still playing college basketball right now in terms of the draft. We'll see if Cole Anthony returns and when Cole Anthony Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's definitely in terms of the draft and not in terms of what his, his, his actual college basketball profit, uh, prospects are, because they suck, man. Georgia sucks. They're bad. They just gave up a 20-point lead last night to Missouri. They suck. They don't care. This one-and-done life ain't for everybody, man. But, like, it, here's the thing. If you're Anthony Edwards, you're doing this one-and-done life, right? It hasn't really affected him. It, well, I'm, like, not saying, I'm not talking about for him. I'm talking from, from a strictly college basketball perspective. If you're Tom Crean, I, know you ha- I understand that you have to go out and get Anthony Edwards because he's, like, the hometown kid or whatever, but uh, sometimes it just kind of feels um, – like you're you're setting your program back when you build like you take a year you build everything around this one kid and it doesn't work out you basically just wasted a season and honestly like you want to take another example of, of teams getting screwed over by somebody leaving when it's a little bit unexpected Nick Claxton imagine yeah. Anthony Edwards and Nick Claxton on the court together this seems a lot better if they have Nick Claxton actually because their big problem is defense and Nick Claxton would probably be one of the five best defenders in college basketball this season uh, Anthony Edwards has shot eight of thirty three from three over the course of the last five games, maybe four games, something like that. I can't remember. It's four games. Yeah. Uh, He's just kind of out there chucking. It feels like Uh, against Mississippi uh, over the weekend, he took 10 threes and two, two point jump shots. Uh, He doesn't really like he took a a bunch last night against Missouri and scored 23 and had 10 rebounds. He was better last night. Like I watched a good amount of that game and he seemed to have a drive that, you know, against Mississippi, for instance, he just looked like he was out there floating and chucking, to be honest. I mean, that that's to me, that's kind of the biggest knock on him, right, is that there are times where it looks like he doesn't he's not really engaged in the game. And even with talking with people that like watched him a lot in high school, they, they yeah. said that this is kind of what he did. Like he would float around for a little bit in the first half and they'd end up down like 15 or 20. It was basically what happened against Michigan state. And then all of a sudden in the second half, he goes out and he drops 40 in one half. And you're like, wow, that kid can really score when he decides to play. The question is like, how often does he actually decide that he, he wants to play? And, 
Um, I don't know. I, I'm sure that you've probably watched more uh, Anthony Edwards than I have simply because like there's only so many times that I can watch a Georgia basketball game play or a Georgia basketball team play when I'm trying to like pretend like I know what I'm talking about from college basketball and a national perspective. But um, it's uh, it's it's frustrating watching him a little bit because I know that if I know what he could be and how good he could be if he was put in maybe a different situation. So um, I don't know. It kind of is what it is. Uh, I guess we like we kind of knew that this is what was going to happen with Anthony Edwards, right? Yes. If only I don't. I, I will say maybe not. I didn't think they were like a top twenty-five team coming into the year or anything. But like Rayshon Hammonds, for instance, is probably a top one hundred player in college basketball this year. Like he is six foot nine junior. They have to play him at center, which isn't great. Like he's definitely more of a mismatch four. But this is a guy that is powerful, is strong, is capable of driving, and can make an impact on the game. And, you know, Severe Wheeler, their, like, little freshman point guard, he has not been bad. Like, he turns it over a lot, but he has not been some disaster necessarily either. And, you know, Tyree Crump is another guy that, you know, older player, can knock down shots from distance. You would think maybe he can help out a little bit. I don't know, man. Like, I, I didn't expect the wheels to fall off quite like this and and I think it I think it does say something about how they're playing and about how Anthony Edwards in particular is playing that the wheels have fallen off like this because you know there are people rushing to make the Ben Simmons comparison at LSU right like Ben Simmons in, in that team that team was what like maybe 15 and eight before a late season swoon. Like they, they were actually pretty good. They beat, uh, I'm pulling up their schedule now. They beat Kentucky that year. Like they beat Texas A&M, which was a good Texas A&M team that I believe went to the sweet 16 that year. Like they actually beat some good teams. Georgia this year is just nowhere. They, they aren't even in that ballpark right now. So what are you saying about, uh, what are you saying about Memphis? They're not good. No, I'm saying Memphis is that's not some, good. That's some serious <laughs> Memphis slander on this I'm, podcast right now. I'm sorry. Memphis is not very good right now. I mean, no. Memphis Memphis has lost to Tulsa and SMU by, you know, the SMU game was by four, but they just lost to Tulsa by 40. Like, this is not a good team either. And they beat a bad Southern Florida team by four. It, it, this is a bad team right now, Memphis. Yeah, then – it's it's almost like we should have seen it coming when you build everything around freshmen and none of those freshmen are necessarily elite. It's almost, Sam, almost like this idea that, that Memphis was a top 10 team heading into the season was just a little bit overblown. Well, I think if they had James Wiseman, things would be a little bit different. But, you um, know, honestly, like I don't, can, I don't can I, necessarily... let me Let me just finish on Georgia real quick and we'll move to Memphis. Okay, okay, go, I, go, do, go. I do think that's important. But you mentioned the idea of Georgia – you know, building around Anthony Edwards and building, you know, this, you know, a one and done thing. I actually don't know that I agree with that because, you know, Severe Wheeler is there and he's been pretty good. Christian Brown, I think, is going to be a fine freshman for them at some point. Uh, like Tamani Kamara, the like six foot eight kid, he's really interesting. They are, they have brought in some freshmen. Rodney Howard, I think the big like bulky six foot 11 kid that uh, looks like he's never shot free throws in his life before. Like that kid... I think could be interesting down the road. I actually do think that Tom has brought in some guys. Maybe like, I like Tom Crean. Like I, I do like him. He's a, I think like he's a pretty good coach and he's someone that I connect with as someone who really likes basketball and has like a lot of basketball conversations with Tom whenever I see him. I think he's actually 
done a pretty good job of bringing in players that are multi-year players that should allow him to build a program, but he just also has Anthony Edwards this year. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I do think that there is something to be said about this being maybe like a gap year. I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it, but a year where you bring in, the, you got this one one and done guy coming in, and you know that it's going to be something of a, uh, I don't want to say it's a rebuilding year, but it's something of a building and development year for the program that you're trying to establish. And having a guy that you can just give like 20 shots to every single night and hope it works out while you're trying to develop some of these other players and get them to a point where they can actually be uh, quality SEC upperclassmen contributors. Okay, I understand that a little bit, but I still don't necessarily think that They shouldn't uh, be is, this bad. They should not be this bad, and I don't necessarily think that it is um, always the best way for you to do it. Cause, because at some point, like if you're if you're one of the other guys on this roster and you're like, well, why doesn't why doesn't Tom Green trust me? Why doesn't Coach trust me? Why is he getting all the shots? I, I do think that there is a little bit of risk inherent in that. But I also I, like if if you're if you're the head coach at the University of Georgia and you have a chance to get the number one player in the country and he's a kid from Georgia, like it. you have to do it. There's no Gotta like do you it. don't have any you don't have any choice. So um, I, I I I don't want to come off sounding too overly critical of Tom Green because I think that. Uh, he got a little bit of a, a tough draw at Indiana, and I do think what he did at Marquette was really, really good. But um, it's not – it's not as – let's just put it like this. It's not as easy as John Calipari has made it to uh, to build a program around nothing but one-and-done freshmen. You wanted to talk about Memphis, and you know, Precious Ochoa is a guy that is an interesting conversation at least. I, I think that he has been much more intriguing since they've begun playing him at the five. A lot more often, I've kind of brought this up with Precious. Like, I think he is a five. I think Precious thinks he's a three, which is a real problem. But I think in the NBA, he's probably an energy backup five that can be a real mismatch nightmare. The problem with Memphis and the problem with, you know, evaluating Precious right now is their guards are bad. Like, Alex Lomax is pretty good, I think. But the rest of their guards right now are pretty bad. Like, Damian Baugh has a 35% turnover rate. Boogie Ellis has a 41.8 true shooting percentage. You know, Tyler Harris is a 20 plus turnover rate and a below average true shooting percentage. Tyler, even like Alex Lomax, the guy that I just praised, like he is a damn near 30 turnover rate. Like the guards have just been nowhere near good enough for what Memphis needs to even evaluate Precious. And, you know, it might've been the same way if James was there. Yeah, and, and that's what you mentioned earlier. That was what my point was going to end up being, is that I think Precious Ashua has kind of stepped in and basically been uh, just like a, a notch below what James Wiseman would have been in that role. And um, I don't know if, like, I don't I don't know how you play Precious and James Wiseman on the court together when they both kind of, what they do best is basically the same thing. Uh, I, I And, you know, your point about the guards is 100% accurate. And, um Tyler Harris and Alex Lomax, to me, are both perfect options if you just want a, like a change of pace coming off of the bench. The problem is like you want to be able to combine the two things that they do, right? You want to take Tyler Harris and his ability to shoot and combine it with uh, just like the the defense and the, the, the playmaking that you get on that end of the floor with Alex Lomax and be able to make them like one player so you don't have to rely on having two eight point guards on the floor at the same time. Because Boogie Ellis and, and Damian Ball, it's almost the same. It's almost like they were freshmen that weren't necessarily considered elite freshmen coming into college. And you put all of that together, and it's a little bit of a mess. Now, what I'm curious about is 
why don't players embrace this idea of being a five in the modern NBA? Like, why is it I don't so hard? Get it. Bam Adebayo, right, is going to end up making like probably nine figures in his NBA career because he's completely bought into this idea that you know what I can be that five that that switches and spreads the floor a little bit and makes plays defensively and I just go out there and I just be really really athletic and make a lot of different things happen and he's going to be like he's going to become generationally wealthy he's going to become Dave Portnoy rich because of it <laughs> right now why like why precious Ashua what he can like I, I, the way that I look at it, and if I could sit down and have a conversation with him face to face, this is exactly what I would say to him: is that you can you can try to be a three, and you can get drafted, and then you can go to I don't know like the G League, and probably have to toil around there for a couple of years, where you hopefully develop into a guy that maybe can be like a Pascal Siakam at the absolute best case scenario, if everything works out for you, and your jumper comes along, and your handle comes along, and maybe you grow a little bit, and maybe you get stronger, and all of these other things. Keeping in mind that the kid is almost 21 years old already. Or you can just embrace this fact that you're six foot nine and you got a wingspan and you're athletic and you're pretty strong and you're a pretty good defender and you can block some shots and uh, you're able to take bigger defenders off the dribble. So why would you not do a thing that can put you in the NBA and play a role in the NBA right now? It's not about, to me, it's not about being the position that you want to be. Right, the same I, like the same thing with with DeAndre Ayton and his insistence on that like he's not a center or whatever. Like it's, it's not about the position. It's not about the position that you want to play. It's about like what position can you play that's going to make you the most amount of money? Because isn't and, that what you're in it for? For money? And, like don't you want to be able to just like put yourself in the best position to succeed? Like DeAndre Ayton is so much more athletic than most fives. Precious Achua is so much more athletic than most fives. That's going to give them a marginal advantage on the court and allow them to have better success, both in terms of their numbers and in terms of their team. Like, fuck the money part of it. The money's important. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm someone who preaches on the fact that these kids should be paid. But, like, even from a winning perspective, like, you're just going to have more fun if you play the position you're supposed to play. Yeah, like, that's the other part about it. Like, you're still... If you're Precious Atchua, you're still going to be playing on the perimeter, right? If you're DeAndre Ayton, you're still going to get plenty of chances to be on the perimeter. Only now you get to go up against guys you actually have a chance of beating off the triple. Whereas if they put you at the four, then they're going to make you post up because you're not going by most fours, right? Yeah. Let's say if you're if you're DeAndre Ayton, right? Like, I, I don't know. You're, you're If you're playing the four, you're probably being guarded by like a Paul George or someone like that, right? If you take Paul George out on the perimeter, you have no prayer of going by him. But what happens if you're being guarded by like a, uh, a Marcus Gasol? Marcus Gasol's not going to stay in front of um, DeAndre Ayton. So it's just, you know, you're, you're going to make yourself look a lot better by going, by taking advantage of what your physical gifts allow you to do in terms of, of mismatches and matchups and uh, not only are you going to look better, not only are you going to have more fun, but you're going to make more money. I don't yeah. understand it. So let's uh, let's jump to guys that have been positive because we've kind of shit on a few guys already. Maybe let's uh, real quick just touch on Cole Anthony before we get to that, though. Like it seems like Cole Anthony's coming back. We don't have a date yet. Are you excited to watch Cole Anthony on this North Carolina team? I actually, I actually am a little bit for a couple of reasons. Um, and I, I wrote about this the other night. I feel like, Everybody, like, it's almost like a, a little bit like what happened with Miles Powell and Seton Hall, where Miles Powell 
missed a couple games because of the concussion, and like everybody else had to put their big point pants on. And Romero Gill had to kind of figure things out and how to be effective in the paint. And Quincy McKnight had to step up and be more of a playmaker. And all of a sudden, like role players like Jared Roden and uh, Anthony Nelson were forced to play uh, a certain way and forced to say, like, okay, I have to figure this out because we're not going to win games. You don't know how long Miles is going to be out, blah, 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 whatever. Yep. Um, and they and they figured it out, and all of a sudden now you have all of these role players that have a ton of confidence, so you don't have to rely just on Miles Powell going for a 30-burger if Seton Hall is going to have a chance to win. Now, with North Carolina, it took them a little time to get there, but, like, Garrison Brooks is falling out of his mind. Like, he's been one of the best big guys in the entire ACC over the course of like, the last six, seven, eight games. I think you put him and Armando Baycott together, that is exactly the kind of front line you want if you're North Carolina. Brandon Robinson seems like he's kind of figuring things out a little bit. Leaky Black seems like he's kind of figuring things out a little bit. I think that the rest of those, like uh, Christian Keeling and Andrew Playtech and, and Justin Pierce, they seem like they kind of are learning what their roles are supposed to be yeah. within this system and within this offense. Now all they need is just a guy that can go out there and be the center of attention. And the biggest problem with North Carolina early in the season was none of those guys knew what the hell they were doing. So you yeah. could just send two or three guys at Cole Anthony nonstop and they're like, because you didn't have to worry about Brandon Robinson. You didn't have to worry about Armando Baker. You didn't have to worry about Leaky Black. But now, if those guys have figured it out and you can't send three guys at Cole Anthony because they're going to burn you, then all of a sudden, Cole Anthony going one on one is a lot more entertaining to watch than Cole Anthony getting doubled off of ball screens and having a 6 11 helper at the rim every time he tries to drive. So, so I am I, excited to watch it. I am still worried about the 6 11 helper being there every time he drives, if only because. So I looked at the numbers, 79% of Armando Baycott's minutes, he's playing like 25 a night, something like that, 20, 24, something like that. Um, 79% of his minutes so far this season have come with Garrison Brooks on the floor. Uh, he obviously starts with Garrison, and theoretically, that is like a very North carolina e scheme, right? Having the guys who crush the offensive glass can run the secondary break. I'll just be honest, I, I don't think Baycott's been very good this year. Uh, he's getting better, which helps. But you look at like any of the lineup stuff. Whenever he's uh, on the floor without Garrison Brooks, like North Carolina's numbers are a nightmare. Uh, Garrison is the guy that like really stirs the drink there. And where I struggle with North Carolina is the insistence to not go small. Uh, they have literally a perfect roster to go small right now uh, when Cole Anthony goes back. You can play Leaky at the four. I know he's skinny, and I know that he's not like a traditional Roy Williams four, but like that dude is six foot eight. He has like a plus three wingspan. Uh, he hits the rebound. He hits the defensive glass pretty hard. He can run the floor, uh, and he can play as like a point forward a little bit. Like that, to me, that's a perfect modern age four man um, next to Garrison Brooks at the five, who has been really, really good this year, and especially over the course of ACC play so far. Then you can run out Brandon Robinson. You can run out maybe a secondary playmaker like a, 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 who's the who's the kid that just came back from injury. Um, is it is it Francis, Jeremiah Francis, or is it Anthony Harris? Which one? Uh, I think it's Jeremiah Francis. Didn't Harris tear his ACL? I one of them tore their ACL. I can't remember which one was which. Yeah, and I, yeah, I was gonna say I can't remember which one is which. Um, Andrew Playtech, his, you know, a guy that hopefully will start shooting. Christian Keeling is a guy that has shown in the past he can be a much better shooter than what he's shown so far. And if you move those guys down into being like a fifth perimeter option, I think that that puts them in maybe a slightly better position to succeed if you play this way. But instead, 
I think that what's going to happen is they're probably going to play like Cole Anthony, uh, Brandon Robinson, Leaky Black, Armando Baycott, and Garrison Brooks, and teams are just going to keep collapsing because, you know, other than Robinson, there's no perimeter threat there. Yeah, and I I do think that Garrison Brooks can be a little bit of a spacer. Um, and I do Not think for like 15, yeah. Yeah, and I do think that it's important to note with Baycott that um, he sprained his ankle at the start of the season, and I don't know, like I, I'm true. not going to say that. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to have watched like very much North Carolina when they were really bad. Uh, in fact, like I just completely ignored them um, until <laughs> watching them against NC State. Like why? Like who? who they, I thought they were terrible. They're, they're, I thought their season was done because I didn't think Cole Anthony was going to come back. But now that he's coming back, it's time to start paying attention uh, a little bit. So um, yeah, and Baycott, yeah. look like Baycott went out and dropped like 19, 12, and seven or something against Miami, uh, that Miami team was terrible that day because they didn't have likes, they didn't have uh, Cam Augusti. But Armando Baycott's been playing way better. It's just that I think that what he gives them isn't marginally better than what, you know, playing smaller would give them. Um, yeah, I don't – like, here's the thing. I don't – I have no uh... – like I'm, I'm not sitting here and trying to say that North Carolina is going to end up being like a top 10 team like they were ranked earlier this year. But I do think that they are good enough to be like in the tournament conversation, maybe yeah. a back end top 25 ish kind of a team. Someone that like if things go the right way can get to a second weekend just because you have two guys and Garrison Brooks and Cole Anthony that can uh, take over a game. And, you know, Roy Williams is, is Roy Williams. And uh, if they can get this offensive glass thing going, it just – they have the makeup of a team that can that can do some things if they can get to the tournament if Cole Anthony comes back, which is why I'm kind of excited to watch him play just because, I mean, Cole Anthony's fun, man. Like we saw at the first game of the season, you know, he's a guy that can get going and put up 35, 36 points. So I'm, I'm, I want him to come back uh, because I do think it'll be fun to watch. The interesting thing to me, um, and, and you could tell me how you feel about this, is that uh, if I was advising him, I would say it's a really dumb idea for him to return to school. But if I'm an NBA GM, even though I know there's a little bit of risk, like I want that guy, like I want to see him come back because I want to know that he's competitive and I want to know that he gives a damn about basketball. And and I feel like the reason uh, that he would be coming back, and I, he's kind of hinted at this in some of like the the posts that he's made, is that like he's sick of hearing people say that he's sitting down and he doesn't want to play and he's scared and all this other kind of stuff. And for someone to be, just kind of be like, you know what, fuck you, I'm coming back, I don't care, I'm going to go out there and play with my brothers, I'm going to go out there and play with my teammates, I'm going to go out there and try to win some games with them. I don't want to see these guys struggling. Uh, I, I I want that in a player that I'm drafting. Does that make sense? So yeah, I actually just wrote about that. I'll tease it instead of. Uh you know, just saying all of my thoughts on it. I talked to a bunch of NBA folks about it. Go uh, read The Athletic later this week. It's going to be me and Brendan Marks talking about Cole Anthony. But I totally agree with you on all of that. Like, I I really would want my point guard to showcase that kind of heart, that kind of uh, a response to adversity. Yeah, it matters to me a great deal, I think. Uh, The problem is that Cole Anthony uh, is, is apparently not a White Claw fan, and that is not something that... I can abide by. Like I, I'm just extraordinarily upset by this. As someone who is a White Claw drinker, someone held up a sign uh, at the North Carolina State game earlier this week in Raleigh and said, Cole Anthony drinks White Claw, and his response was not great. And then he tweeted about it and said, that's so disgusting. We are a White Claw positive podcast here at the Game Theory, and I uh, might have to sincerely drop Cole Anthony substantially on my board. So I, I don't I – don't, I don't. I get it a little bit just because it's like refreshing, but I don't understand how people are like our white claw stands or truly stands or uh, it's truly just, is bad. 
I no, truly is. I had a truly for the first time this weekend. We were playing poker over at uh, my buddy's house, and he had a truly in the fridge. And I was like, okay, I'll try this. It was the worst thing I've drank in my life. Like, it, it is possible to fuck up sparkling water with alcohol. I I just don't understand the obsession with it. Like, it's yes, it's 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 tasty, and yes, it's nice on a refreshing day. And you know what? Sometimes uh, if I'm getting a little frisky and I don't want to drink a little croix, then I'm going to have a white claw instead. But it's just kind of like it's bubbly water. Sometimes it just gets you drunk. Like I don't, I don't understand why people are so obsessed with it. This is, this is why it's, it's bubbly water and it gets you drunk. Like what more, what more could you want, Rob? It's a good point. <laughs> like you, you, you made my case for you <laughs> or for me. Um, Fair point. Who are some guys that have impressed you? Like, who is someone that has really helped themselves in your eyes this year and uh, as a potential pro down the road? So there's – I was actually asked this um, on uh, uh, Humble Brag. I did TV for um, uh, like a, a segment at the Golden State Warriors halftime on NBC Sports Bay Area, and they asked me this very question. And my answer was two guys, I think, have helped them more, helped themselves more than anybody else in college basketball this season. The first one is Isaac Okoro because I don't think that there was a single person heading into the season that had him listed as a kind of like a back-end top 10 borderline lottery kind of a guy. And I think that's what he's played himself into um, for like all of the reasons I'm sure you've written about this plenty is, you know, the way that he can defend his basketball IQ, his passing ability, the intangibles, the fact that he's a winner, like all of the – you know, it, all of the stuff, like the cliche stuff that you hear about guys uh, as winners, I feel like he kind of uh, fits that mold. From what I've been told, like the, the dude is an absolute worker, and there's no doubt, like people don't have much question that he's going to find a way to turn himself into a shooter. So I think he's probably opened more people's eyes than just about anyone except for Obi Toppin. And I'm curious your thoughts on this because my take on Obi Toppin is that he's more or less – the same guy now than he that he was last season. Part of it, uh, you know, he's added a little bit of confidence in his ability to shoot, and and, and certainly he's uh, improved some things like just in his overall game, like ball handling. Like he's 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 gotten better at some things, but he's more or less the same guy now that he was a year ago. The reason why we're talking about him now as a potential national player of the year and a potential top, what well, I don't know, eight ten pick something like that maybe top five things kind of break the right way for him is I, that I have him at six right now okay so he got put into the the this system that allows him to showcase all of the things that he does great and allow him allow you to view him in the lens of what he'll be at the next level because I think you know in, in an ideal world he is probably like an NBA four kind of five that tweener that that, that can play the five in smaller lineups probably yeah a best fit at, at a four um, against the normal lineup. And you see him playing for Dayton on floor where there's four shooters around him. They use a ton of ball screens. you got a guy in Anthony Grant that spent two years on Billy Donovan's uh, bench at Oklahoma City um, that has uh, learned how to kind of build an NBA kind of a system. I don't know how many teams play as close to a pro-style offense as what Dayton does. I, I, so, I don't think any do that I've seen this year for what it's worth. So, I'm not going to sit here and say I've watched every MEAC game, but I have not seen a team play a more pro style system than what Dayton does. And I think that because of it, they're the best team in college basketball offensively. Yeah. And, and so they, they spread the floor. They have a bunch of old guys that are really talented that can play in ball screens. They put Obi top in the space. They let him be a rim runner. They let him be a lob target. They let him take advantage of the fact that you can play him at the five and create mismatches offensively. They get out in transition. They do all the things 
that you need to be able to do to or that Obi Toppin, they put him in all the situations that he needs to be able to thrive in to be an NBA player, and all of a sudden people are seeing him like, oh, yeah, you know what? Maybe we fucked up not drafting this guy last season. So I think that, um, to me, he is the guy that has probably improved his draft stock, so to speak, more than anybody else in college hoops uh, this season. And I don't think it's because he's been markedly better as a basketball player. It's just simply the fact that they are using him in a way that he was, he'll be used in the NBA level. Because as good as he is in college, I think that he is, um, you know, I kind of made the same point about Miles Bridges uh, a couple seasons ago. Obi Toppin is not a guy that you want to be your go-to guy. He'll be the right. star but you don't want him to be your go-to guy. He'll be your best player, but he's never going to be the guy that you give the ball to with 10, 12, 14 seconds left and is going to step out and, and create a shot for you. He's going to be the guy that makes your team good enough where you're not in that situation where you need a game-winning shot, but he's not going to be the guy that takes the game-winning shot. For you. And we've already seen that. Jalen Clutcher has hit uh, – or Jalen Clutcher, I'm sorry, has hit uh, – I, I, I like the fact that you just called him Clutcher. That's definitely yeah, no, a nickname. I, I, it's, it's not the first time that I've done that. But uh, So Jalen Clutcher has uh, – He's the guy that hit the three to force overtime against Kansas. He's the guy that hit the three to beat St. Louis on the road. Uh, so they have guys that can step up and, and be the game, make the game-winning shots. But the reason they're in a position to do those things is because of what Obi Toppin allows them to do offensively. And I think that those things that he does well is why he's going to uh, fit really well in the NBA. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think he has gotten substantially better from last year, uh, mostly in the ways that he needed to get better too. He needed to become a better ball handler. Like he can actually drive in a straight line. He can throw out some like crossover behind the back dribble into a step back jumper. Like he did against Kansas. Like he actually has some wiggle off the bounce now too, in a way that is very controlled and functional. Uh, that's been the biggest difference for me and the fact that, like, look, he's only hitting, like, 35% of his threes, but I feel like he is a better shooter this year. Like, it just – he gets them up a little bit smoother and quicker than what he has in the past. Uh, he is awesome. The, the biggest sign for me when it comes to whether or not a guy is a good shooter is if a coach lets him shoot, and Obi Toppin is shooting, what, like, three and a half threes a game, I think it is, something like that? It's like three a game, yeah. Yeah, so if, if Anthony Grant is letting him shoot three threes a game, I think that tells you what you need to know about his his trust in the fact that, that he can make those shots. Yeah, no question. Um, yeah, I think he's a stud. Like I think he is absolutely a guy that, like you said, maybe he's a third big man, maybe he is a starting big man, but he's a get in this draft just because he's a modern big man who can just do so many different things. He can pass, he reads the floor pretty well, he can knock down shots, he can handle the ball in space. Like that, That's just a wide breadth of skills that make him a very real NBA prospect, and it unlocks the, everything that Dayton wants to do. It's hard to run the offense that they want to run without that guy, Obi Toppin, right? Without the guy who can knock down shots and can run dribble handoffs and can, uh, you know, be such a different threat in the way that he rolls or pops coming off of ball screens, right? So I actually think that he is uh, someone that you're right, has helped them immensely, and I think he's the biggest reason why they're the best offense in college basketball. Yeah, th th so there's one guy, I'm actually looking at your, uh, your, your top, was it top 100 board? Yeah. Um, there's one guy that I think that you are criminally low on. Who? And it is Mamadi Diakite. Oh, yeah, you love Diakite. I do. I think that uh, the, the way that he's been able to shoot and what he's kind of showcased as a perimeter threat so far this season, uh, combined with what we know he can be on the defensive end of the floor, I just, 
but so maybe it's maybe let me ask it like this: like, what am I what am I missing that has you saying that he is uh, what is it seventy seventh in your top one hundred? So. Do you think he can physically play the five at the next level? Like, do you think that he can deal with the physical beating that these 240, 250 pound centers will put on him? I do. I think that you can also put some added weight on him. Um, I'm not generally concerned about guys when it comes to whether or not they can uh, develop physically in an NBA strength and conditioning program, if that makes sense. So would you put him... So what kind of bucket would you put him in? Would you want him as a guy like that gets a guaranteed contract next year? Would you want him as a second round stash? Would you want him as a two-way guy? Like what what do you think he is in the NBA next year? I would probably take him as a second round pick somewhere, just as, you know, a backup 5 off the bench. I, I do think that he is someone it, simply because of the way that he can shoot, the way that he's shown to have a little bit of a perimeter ability and what we know he can be uh, in terms of like a rim protector, switchable defensively, I just I would take a risk on him um, at some point in the in the early to mid second round. So I know that like it says I have him what around like seventy five right now. By the yeah. time guys decide to return to school and everything, he'll probably bump up twenty spots on that alone on my board. So like we're not all that far off in terms of like what range he's in. It, like on uh, on a perspective draft board. So I, I actually agree with you. I think he has a shot to stick just because the jump shot is so functional now. What I worry about is dealing with him just kind of taking a beating inside. He's never been a great rebounder. Um, you know, always a guy that struggles to turn it over uh, a little bit too often, and he's not a guy that makes, like, advanced passing reads and short rolls. Uh, that's not their offense either. Don't get that twisted. But, like – I want to see more of him as a passer, and I want to see more of him as a rebounder, I think, to feel great about him sticking. I would personally say he's, like, borderline draftable, probably more of a two-way. Yeah, I I just think that he has – there's some upside there. But, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. Um, And definitely playing in the Virginia system. uh, He's also 23 already, too. Yeah, and so I – I do think that there is a little bit of a plus and minus there. I do think he might be a little bit closer to being ready to contribute. But, yes, 23-year-olds that still have to uh, to develop their body a little bit are not necessarily in an ideal world. I just, uh, you know, I see I see how the, N- or, I'm sorry, how the NBA is played and the way that they ask their big men to play uh, in, in, you know, this day and age. And I just, I, I don't understand why um, people would not want someone like Amamadi Diakite given those, uh, you know, given what the modern NBA is. Well, here's here's a great one. So, would you rather have him or Nick Richards? I would probably rather have Mamadi Diakite. So, I have them very close on my board right now, and I think that a big part of it is, who do you think is a better shooter, Diakite or Richards? I think Diakite is a better shooter. I'm not convinced of that. Um, I think there is a real chance that Nick Richards can actually shoot it and is not just like some fake shooter. And, and like, obviously, Diakite has taken 43s. He's certainly not a fake shooter. I think he can actually knock down shots. But, like, Nick Richards, I think, might be a very, very real shooter that just doesn't get the chance to shoot. And then he is also they're, – they're very similar in the way that they operate. They, they, neither of them can really pass. They both turn it over a ton. Neither of them are great uh, – defensive rebounders. Richards is just bigger, and I think he has a better chance to stick inside as a rim protector, whereas Diakite has a better chance to stick as a perimeter defender and a guy that doesn't get kind of uh, 
switched on to by these guards and taken advantage of. So which one of those would you rather have? I think it is kind of a tough call with the way that NBA defenses are going toward more drop coverage schemes. And I think it's basically systemic in terms of which one would you rather have. Yeah, and and, um, I don't want to sound like I'm hating on Nick Richards because I do think that he is a guy uh, with a potential NBA future. Yeah. Uh, But I do – I I would rather have – if if I was the guy drafting, I would rather have Mamadi Diakite because of the way that I would want to um, play. Maybe it's not like the best idea for me to like kind of talk about the stuff in the way that I would want to play because I'm not sure that how many NBA teams are going to do those kind of things. But uh, just the way that I, I I think that you need to play to win in the NBA, is, it makes sense for me to see Mamadi Diakite on that platform. Yeah, and, and like I think with Nick too, like Nick's a guy that I got yelled at for having that low. Um, I think Nick's like a two-way guy next year, and there's not shame in that. Like, I think he's so dramatically improved his draft positioning over the course of the last, you know, what, three months realistically, that that's a credit to him, that he has genuinely put himself on the board of being a draftee. But, like, is he as good as Bruno Fernando last year, for instance, who's, you know, kind of struggling a little bit with the Hawks, to be honest? I don't really think so in terms of NBA translation because – when I look at Bruno, Bruno can pass it a little bit more. Uh, probably not quite the shooter that Nick is, but was a better rebounder, was a better, uh, had better feel for the game on both ends of the floor. Just is a more translatable skill set than Nick Richards. So it, it's not that I think Nick is bad. I think he is legitimately a get on a two-way contract this year. It's just that I think he's a two-way guy. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I know that you're a Sadiq Bay guy, aren't you? Yes, I am. Very much so a Sadiq Bay guy. I am also a Sadiq Bay guy. I will give you the floor on why you like Sadiq. It's part of it is what he's turned into as a defender. Um, you know, I was I talked to some of the guys on the Villanova staff the other day, and they were saying like he is he's the best defender they have in that program. Like they put him on point guards, and, and you yep. know, like Villanova they they switch, so it's not like you get those matchups permanently. But they put him on point guards. They put him on big guys when they need him to guard big guys. He's grown. Um, so when he when he was a sophomore in high school, he was six foot one on nobody's radar. By the time he was a senior, he was like six foot seven. Uh, he's now probably closer to like six eight, maybe six foot nine. Like he's he's grown since he's been at Villanova. Yeah. Um, he is a guy that uh, like when Villanova was recruiting him. So the thing about where he was in high school, he went to Josh Hart's high school, Sidwell Friends, and uh, it's not it's not a great it, it, it's a good basketball program and, and it plays in a tough conference in Washington D.C. Um, but he was also like, well, it's not like it's the math that where there's a, a ton of uh, talent rolling through it and you're going to have right. like high, five high, high major guys in the starting lineup. So he was like, he kind of had to do everything for him. You know, he was their point guard. He was their big guy. He was the do it all, like kind of like a Josh Hart. And uh, so he, they didn't really know what he was defensively when he got to Villanova and when they were, were recruiting him because he was put in a situation where he had to do so many different things. Like they didn't want to risk him picking up fouls and they didn't want to risk tiring him out on the defensive end of the floor because, you know, they needed him to win games to go out and try to get like 30, 10 and 10. So they didn't realize what the, part of the reason that they, uh, they didn't, they, they, they stopped recruiting him in high school was one, they got a commitment from, I forget, I forget exactly who it was. Somebody committed, and, you know, the way that Jay wants to do his scholarship stuff is he doesn't want – like he wants nine, maybe ten guys on the roster because he he thinks it's better to play with a short bench if someone gets hurt than it is to have 11 or 12 guys and two or three people just really unhappy because they're not getting the minutes that they want to be right. getting. So, um, so they didn't – they ended up uh, taking away the scholarship offer 
to Sadiq Bay, but then of course, you know, Dante DiVincenzo goes pro and Amari Spellman goes pro. And uh, then NC State, I forget why they had, uh, they ended up with 14 scholarship guys, but they did. So they had to kind of drop Sadiq. And Jay was like, well, come on down, let's do it. And uh, so he kind of ended up there. Um, fortunately, and they didn't realize what they had in him until like they got into practice and he kept locking up guys and um, he's out there making threes and he's got a little bit of playmaking ability too. So you put, you put it all together and you got a guy that's six foot nine that we know is going to be a great defender that can really shoot the ball and that has proven that he has some playmaking ability. Like that is exactly what you look for, right? You want someone that can defend in isolation. You want someone that can create in isolation. They want someone that can create in isolation while also being a floor spacer that can guard like different positions. It's just to me, and we should not be surprised about this coming out of the Villanova program, but to me, like he is just the perfect role player in the NBA. And I don't know if he'll ever be a, a star or a starter or whatever. I just, when I watch him play, I'm like, yeah, that guy can probably play 10 years in the NBA coming off someone's bench. Maybe he's a starter on a, on a playoff team. Just he's a perfect role player in the modern NBA. So I ranked him at like 23, something like that on my board. 22. I'm too too low. I think he's like a legit late lottery pick now. Like I, I am basically all convinced that he is like everything he does, especially in this draft where there's so much uncertainty. I really, really just want that guy on my team. He's shooting 46% from three, and he's maybe the best defender in the Big East. Maybe not the best, but he's one of, like, the three or four best. Certainly it'd be him, what, like, Quincy McKnight is up there. Um, I'm not really a Theo John guy. Paul Reed's probably up there, too. Uh, Yeah, Paul Reed. I was about to say Paul Reed, definitely. Yeah, so, like, it's probably, like, one of the three of those guys, I would say. I mean, he. Uh, let's just put it like this. He's the best defender on, on Villanova, and they, they are willing to put him on literally anybody and feel comfortable with it in a conference that has Miles Powell and Marcus Howard and, like you just mentioned, Paul Reed and, and a lot of talent at a lot of different positions, and Villanova has no problem putting him on literally anyone that, that they play against. Well, here, here's how you say it. He is the best defender on what is currently the best defense in Big, Big East play this year. Are they really the best defense in Big East play right now? Yes, uh, they wow. are. T- by the way, they're twenty-five to one to win the title right now. That is, uh, that's high. I think I yes, will be placing a future on that. To be honest, they are. They are certainly uh, trending in the right direction. And hold on, I'm, I'm bringing it up right now. There was, a, I think it was maybe even as recently as three weeks ago, they were outside the top 100 in Ken Palm's defensive efficiency metric, and they're 60th right now. Yeah. Overall, they they figured yeah, it out. They're really good. Yeah, they're really good. I, I can't wait. We, we get two games. I think on is Saturday the first time that they play Villan- uh, Seton Hall, Villanova? Seton Hall. Yeah, it's no. next Saturday. Next Saturday. Yeah, that's going to be a fun game, man. That is going yeah. to be a fun, fun basketball game. You mentioned Daniel Aturu earlier. I'm just going to kind of speed through some guys now real quick. Daniel Aturu, what do you think? Uh, awesome. I love him. Um, I think that – He's kind of showing like a little bit of more perimeter ability than I, I ever realized that he had. Agreed. And like he, he's like making jump shots. The other night, um, I, I think we were texting about this, but like it, it was against Ohio State and he was going up against Caleb Weston, who was supposed to be, I think it was Ohio State, right? Yeah, it was yeah. Ohio State. Yeah, we and were he hit like, that. And he hit like these three, uh, the, these three jumpers where um, like one of them was like a crossover and the other one was like a, a pull up. And Yeah, it was uh, like I, a I just, jab step pull up. It was crazy. Yeah, and I I just and then there was another one where like he got the ball on the perimeter and he like took one dribble and a hop step and hit like a floater from nine feet at a weird angle and it's just kind of like I did not know 
that he was able to do that. Combined with the rebounding, combined with what he know we know about him finishing around the rim, combined with the defense and the shot blocking and all that, he just he's a very very intriguing prospect to me. And um, I, you know I haven't watched probably as much of him as you have, but every time that I watch him play, I'm just like, God damn, that guy can play. Yeah. Um... Cassius Winston and Xavier Tillman, I'm officially on board with those two guys being my favorite. Like, I had to answer a question yesterday. Who is your favorite player in college basketball to watch this year? And I was like, this is kind of a cop-out, but I would say Cassius Winston and Xavier Tillman running ball screens together is my favorite thing, and it's because of the synergy they have. It's not just, you know, one guy. Yeah, I'm I'm very much on board the the Cassius Winston as, as an NBA player bandwagon. I just... When you are able to do what he does when it comes to running ball screens and you have the mentality that he does and the personality that he does and you know all the things that he brings off the court, um, I just – you look at someone uh, like Fred Van Vliet and Jalen Brunson and TJ McConnell and all these guys that kind of have the same uh, point guard cliche characteristics as Cassius Winston does. And I, I just – I find it very hard to believe that he's not going to find a job somewhere as the backup point guard in the NBA for the next decade and – uh, and once he's done doing that, then he's going to end up being a coach. And, you know, I just when you have a basketball mind like he does, I, I think you just draft him, you get him in your locker room, uh, probably as a second round pick. I don't know if I would use a first round pick on him, but uh, I just I think that there's a lot of things that he brings to the table that aren't necessarily like the physical tools that you're going to be salivating over. So I'm, I'm very much in on him. Same with Xavier Tillman, too. I think uh, I He's the the passing is there, um, obviously. Like he's really good when it comes to like the short rolls and making decisions and ball screens. And uh, I think that he is what he's done best to me this season. And what I didn't realize he necessarily had in his arsenal before this season is what teams are doing with Cassius Winston is they just double team him. They send two guys at him and, and force him to give up the ball. Yeah. And uh, what like Xavier the the when Michigan State kind of made their jump is when Xavier Tillman really started thriving as being able to take advantage of those four on three situations. And I think when you get to the NBA level, depending on where he gets drafted and who he goes to, but there's going to be a lot of times when uh, point guards get double teamed and they try to they put you in these four on three situations that Draymond Green like guys like that are just so good at at taking advantage of. And to me, Xavier Tillman's been one of the guys that's really good at taking advantage of that. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, next guy here, uh, Joel Ayayi, Joel, I'm sorry, is Joel Ayayi. And just in general, who is your favorite Gonzaga prospect? I, I love Joel Ayayi. Um, you know, the the size, the rebounding, the passing ability. I think he's a better shooter than I realized. Uh, I, I had literally no expectation for him coming into the season. <laughs> like I, like when, when Gonzaga goes out and they recruit, Two grad transfers, one of whom is Admon Gilder, who is like, okay, whatever. And the other whom comes from uh where did where did Ryan Woolwich come from? Was it North, North Texas? Texas, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Some some little school in Texas where He's he been good really, too, by the way. Oh he I've my low key hot take is is he's been uh I don't want to say like the most important guy. But like he is the glue that kind of holds everything together on that team because of what he does defensively, the fact that he can kind of let Joel play off of the ball, the fact that he gives him lineup versatility and lets him go small, the fact that, you know, all of a sudden the team that didn't have a point guard now has an actual, like, true, honest-to-God point guard on their team. Uh, I, I think that he's been um, – I, I don't. I don't know. He's been such an, an important integral piece. They're not anywhere near where they are without Ryan Woolwich on that team, which 
feels like really weird to say, but the bigger picture is that I did not expect anything out of Joel Ayayi because Mark Few went out and recruited two grad transfers over him. And they had that freshman coming in, Brock Ravid or whatever his name is. So I was kind of like, yeah, I guess this French kid is going to be a bust. And lo and behold, here we are in January talking about how he might end up being a first-round draft pick. So I love him, man. I love him. Yeah, he's a stud. Uh, I think he is their best prospect. Uh, you know, you bring up Woolridge. I do think to an extent this system in general, like they run like a lot of ball screen continuity stuff. Um, it does end up, I don't want to say like overrating point guards necessarily, but like it, it makes point guards look good in this scheme if you can run it. And Woolridge has done an exceptional job of running it this season uh, for a guy that, you know, was coming from North Texas and wasn't in the system until later in the off season. So uh, I really like what he's done quite a bit. Tilly is great. Kispert's great. This is another team that I think legit national title contender, no doubt about it in my mind. Like if you, if I had to ask you who the legitimate national title contenders are, I know it's a very open field, but like who were the top five that you would pick? The top five would be uh, Baylor, Kansas, Gonzaga, I think are the obvious top three. Um, and then I think. By the way, I would not pick Baylor. I know, I know they're very obvious, but I totally under. I just am worried about the talent level. I, I am too. Um, but I think what kind of gives them a little bit of a saving grace. There's two things. There's two reasons that I, I, I think they can go out and run one at all. One of them is. They just have so many different ways that they can beat you. And to me, they are like the one team in college basketball this year where you can't say, okay, if you play them this way, you can beat them. You know, if you are, if you're playing against Duke and you have the ability to pull Vernon Carey away from the basket and you can kind of do some of the things that like Dayton can do, I don't think that Duke can beat Dayton this year, right? Um, I think that when it comes down to, uh, a team like Kansas, if you are able to pull Yudoka Azubuki away from the basket while being able to have a scheme where you can effectively double team him the way that uh, that that Baylor did in Fog Allen Fieldhouse, then I think that they can be beaten. Uh, I think that you know, I don't think that Gonzaga is a team that where 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 you can sit there and say, okay, they they have all of this great talent, they are going to completely overwhelm you. I don't see a way that they can. Uh, uh, there, there's mismatches that you can have against Gonzaga to take advantage of them. I don't know what the mismatch is for Baylor, right? They can play three guards if they need to. Mark Vidal can play big. He can also play small. They can kill you on the offensive glass. They also happen to have some of the best shooters on the perimeter. They have four different guards that can go out and make a big shot in a big moment that are just hard to guard. So uh, I they they're a great man-to-man defense. They have three elite man-to-man defenders. They also happen to be a team that spent the last three years playing that, what is it, the 1-3 the one, one, back to a 2-3 zone. So they can give you that look if they need to. I, I just, I think there are so many different ways that they can beat you, and that's what makes them so tough in my mind. So I, I certainly think that they are, uh, especially in a year where we have so many questions about how good some of the, We have a year where Jordan McCabe is starting on the top 10 team. That tells you all you need to know about whether or not Baylor can win a national title. I can honestly tell you, is Jordan McCabe on uh, San Diego State? Like who, who? You know, Jordan McCabe is the starting point guard for West Virginia. That's, yeah. I've watched West Virginia like four times this year, and that's not a name that I am familiar with. Like, I know Haley. <laughs> I know Miles McBride. I obviously know Big Shee Wayne Culver. Like, uh, I, I know a lot Big of Shee. these guys, but. It's Big Sheep. First and foremost, it's Big Sheep. I, I need you to get the name right if you're going to be talking about him. It's Big Sheep. I don't think he pronounces his name Sheeb, though. I think it's yeah, Sheeb. I pronounce it Sheeb. It's Big Sheeb. 
Big Sheeb. We can go with Big Sheeb for the rest of this Big podcast. Sheep. But like, yes. yeah, it's not, it's not even like I'm not familiar with a lot of West Virginia's guys. But Jordan McCabe is not a guy that I know. Let's put it like this: if you are uh, if you are watching college basketball from an NBA perspective, you should not know who Jordan McCabe is. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that does not surprise me that he has not popped when I've watched West Virginia. Um, he is a point guard that is shooting twenty two percent from three. I love it. Love he it. is a point guard who has a turnover rate of 30%. Oh, God. Oh, God. He, he's six foot, 180 pounds. He should not be on your radar, Samuel. Okay. I can live with that. So you have two more teams. You said Kansas. You said Gonzaga. You said Baylor. Who is your other two? Oh, man. This is hard. There's a lot of teams that I want to put in there. I Like, honestly, I think once you get past there, you get to a tier of, like, seven or eight teams and Villanova's in there and Dayton's in there and Michigan State's in there. I think Seton Hall's in there. I think that I would probably put Oregon in that conversation with the way that Chris, uh, Chris Duarte's playing. I think, did I say yeah. San Diego State yet? No, you haven't, but they're very so, good. Yeah. I put San Diego State in that conversation. So there's like a team, I'm sure I'm missing someone that, that I probably should be in there. So please don't yell at me, whoever uh fan of whatever team I, I forgot to Kentucky. There you go. Kentucky is probably the one that I was missing in that conversation. So, um, yeah, once you get past those top three, to me, then you have a tier of like eight to ten teams that are all really in that conversation. There's there's a lot to mention. So I don't I'm I'm going to I'm going to cop out on answering your question. Yeah, like I would have Baylor in the top seven somewhere. But like I think I would put Kansas, Gonzaga, Dayton, Michigan State. Oh, man, probably Louisville, probably Louisville now that they have uh, David Johnson there. What about Duke? Where would you have them? Probably in the top 10 somewhere. Maybe bottom half of the top 10. Um, I would have Villanova high. Like I really like Villanova. I really like Seton Hall. They'd be in the top 10. And I'd have Baylor. That would probably be my top 10, actually. Yeah. The, did you say San Diego State? Would you have them in there? Um, no, I wouldn't. Not that like I dislike San Diego State, but it comes down to a talent thing for me. And like I think that you know they have one pro. Like Malachi, I think, has a good shot to be a pro, but... Probably would not have San Diego State in there, to be honest. I just – they're another team where it's just what they can do defensively, I think, has to put them at the very least in the conversation between the, the defense they can play and the way that they can shoot threes. When you're looking for teams that can win it all, I think those are the two things that you kind of uh, look for, at least I do. And I yeah. think that San Diego State does both of, those, both of those things well. But, again, I would not have them um, as uh, one of the top three, one of the elite teams for me. So – yeah, like, it, it's not that I dislike San Diego State. Like, I've watched them a decent amount this year, and, like, I think they do defend, and, uh, you know, they get great guard play, and they can shoot the ball. Like, I actually think that they have a chance to win the title, for sure. I just look at teams, and I think that they're probably not quite as talented as a lot of those teams. Like, it was the same thing I was saying with Ohio State earlier this year. Like, Ohio State came into the year, looked great, but I don't know that they have enough talent, you know? Yeah, they don't have enough options outside of, of Caleb Weston. Like, he's really right. all they have on the offensive end of the floor, unless Dwayne Washington decides to get his head out of his ass. And there's no guarantee that that's going to occur. Yeah, no question. Um, yeah, I think that I'd have Kentucky somewhere in that mix too. Like, I really still like Kentucky. I am not out on Kentucky at all. Like, it seems like a lot of people have jumped off. I'm still very in. Who's who's jumped off? That seems silly like, to me. 
I feel like a lot of people have kind of jumped off the Kentucky bandwagon. They're like outside of the top 25 or whatever in Ken Palm. Like there, a lot of people complained after the like Evansville losses and the Utah losses and they've been better recently, but like, look, they also just lost South Carolina a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much in on, on Kentucky still being a team that can win it all, especially with Nick Richards playing the way that he's playing. Like they're not, they're nowhere near a perfect team. They're, they're, there are some serious flaws on that roster, but when you have guys that can take over a game the way that Tyrese Maxey can, the way that Nick Richards has uh, in recent weeks, then then you very much have to be in the conversation for a national title contender in my mind. Has any other team lost to a? Has any other like top fifteen team lost to a team outside of the top ninety? Duke, right? Duke, I guess. Yeah. To, where's uh, where's Stephen F. Austin? Austin? Yeah, I'm sure they're not in the top ninety. They're probably you know, somewhere in the top 120 or so. But, yeah, like Duke has lost once. Maybe Ohio State dropped one of those. No, no Ohio all State of Ohio State's are losses are, are – Yeah, they're all good losses. Uh, West Virginia lost to uh, Kansas State and St. John's, and they're both in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, those are two good ones. But, like, Kentucky has three losses outside of the top 90 right now. Oh, no, there's no team in college basketball that has more atrocious losses – to go with like more really really good wins in Kentucky, it's it's a very weird profile when you look at them. Yeah, it is. The the other team I've watched a little bit of recently and am semi in is Houston. Houston is kind of interesting. I think they have a bunch of like athletic guards who can make plays with ball in hand, and some guys who can shoot even. Yeah, the the one thing with Houston is if you can kind of slow down um, Quentin Grimes and Dejan Giroux, and you keep them off the offensive glass, like there's not they they do get somewhat limited when those things happen. Uh, but slowing down Quentin Grimes and Dejan Giroux is not always the easiest thing to do. Um, but, but then they when can it comes just have Caleb to, Mills go, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that uh, the other thing is, like I was going to say, is um, they have more options than just that. And it's also Kelvin Sampson. And at some point, like, you just want to bet on Kelvin Sampson being able to find a way to get things done on a college yeah. basketball court because he's, he's a really good coach. I – Believe it or not, I may or may not have a uh, a sixty six to one uh, futures ticket on Houston to win the national title. I don't mind that. Like, I don't think it's impossible that that happens. What I'm kind of banking on is for them to uh, rise in the top twenty five a little bit, and hopefully that can get down to like thirty to one, and I can double my money and cash out because that's yeah. what my uh, my betting app allows me to do. So we'll see if that ends up that that was at least my game plan when I uh, when I purchased the ticket, shall we yeah. say. That's smart. Uh, Rob, tell the people where they can find your work. You can find me at NBCSports.com. You can find the College Basketball Talk podcast anywhere that podcasts are given away for absolutely free. And you can find me on Instagram at Rob.Doster. Go follow me there. I don't have a 1,000 followers yet on Instagram. I need more followers. Go subscribe to Rob's Instagram. Go subscribe to the College Basketball Talk podcast. This has been the Game Theory podcast. Go to The Athletic. I have a bunch of stuff coming up over the course of this week. Uh Danny, Seth, and I talked about the Detroit Pistons and what they should do with the deadline. I have some stuff on Cole Anthony. I might have some draft stuff later on this week. So until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.